So that today we're going to continue in the series that we've been in now for a few weeks called Jesus Come and See. And uh, as I mentioned kind of on going through this series, it's a little bit of a different series um, because we are focusing specifically really solely on Jesus. And I know that sounds odd, but often, you know, when you're moving through a passage of Scripture, you're looking at a topic as well, maybe looking at anxiety or fear or money and possessions, or whatever the topic is in the scriptures, and the Bible speaks to so many different life issues. Uh, But sadly, we often don't reserve time to just look specifically at Jesus with all of our attention. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And we're putting together kind of a biography in a sense. We're letting the gospel speak and uh, the New Testament speak primarily. And we're putting together this biography. We're just kind of stacking one block on top of the other. And as we move through this series, hopefully for you, you've been able to see a little bit of cohesion, right? How it all fits. And, uh, and so we're using the Bible as our source material. Here's the neat thing that when you look in the gospel specifically, uh, and this is important, I think, to make note of, that um, the Bible is so different than any other book written in antiquity. One, because it's God's word. Uh, God claims to have inspired it. And, uh, and that's what we hold to because, because because it has proven itself to be God's word without error. And so it's different than any other word that's, or any other book that's ever been written. But at the same time, it is a compilation of a variety of books, 66 books in particular that make the Bible. And when you get to the New Testament, when you get the gospel specifically, that's kind of where the microscope comes into the life of Jesus. That's where everything begins to, to kind of pull out the details of Jesus that are miss, missed elsewhere. And when you come to Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, these guys wrote like three decades from the life of Jesus. There was a very small amount of time between the days when Matthew wrote his gospel, Mark his, and Luke his. Only three decades between the time when they wrote their gospel and when Jesus walked this earth. That, that, is, uh, that is incredibly significant because it lends even another layer of evidence that we can trust what it says. When you put John's gospel in there, he was five to six decades after the life of Jesus. And so when we read the gospels, we're reading books that were written not centuries and centuries later after the fact. We're written, these are books that were written by people who actually walked with Jesus. They were right up close to the events of his life, and that gives us great, great reason to trust everything that we read here. So as we move through the Gospels, we're putting together this biography of Jesus specifically. What we've looked at at the start was how Jesus is eternal God. That was our starting point. After we did that one week of introduction, that focused a lot on scripture. We looked at how Jesus is eternal God, prophesied in the Old Testament when he came and he was born of the Virgin Mary, placed in the manger there in the city of Bethlehem. We looked at that week two. That that was kind of an emphasis on his humanity. And you put those two together and what you see is, is that Jesus, when he walked this earth, he claimed to be God because he was God, always was throughout eternity, without beginning, without end. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He was fully deity when he walked this earth and also fully man. And that's one of the unique characteristics of the Gospels is that it emphasizes both of those qualities of Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. And when he was born in the city of Bethlehem, that wasn't the beginning of his existence. Again, he's eternal, but that was the beginning of his time where he just sort of moved into to space and time as we know it, stepped into history, and he walked this earth. And it's the Gospels that capture that information about the life that he lived. We also look specifically at the childhood of Jesus just a couple of weeks or so ago. Not a lot of information in the scriptures there, 
But one of the things we pulled out was that Jesus would have lived like every other Jewish boy his age in the first century. He would have been raised in the scriptures, the Old Testament. He would have been very familiar with worship. He would have worshiped in the synagogue. He would have gone to the temple. He obviously, as scripture tells us, that he traveled with his family uh, to Passover each year in Jerusalem. He would have known the religious system, so to speak, that every other Jewish boy his age would have known. And yet he walked this earth without sin as God and as man. And then last Sunday, what we looked at specifically as well was the, the mission of his life. What was the overarching mission? Was it just to heal a bunch of people? Was it just to preach a lot of really good messages that we're going to be memorized and talked about 2,000 years later? Was it to perform miracles? What was the mission of his life? All those things were important. But what we boiled down last Sunday was that the overarching mission of Jesus' life, the whole purpose for which he came, was Luke 19.10, to seek and to save that which is lost. And we pulled together some other passages of Scripture that talked about the purpose of of his life on this earth. One was to destroy the works of the enemy. Another was to give life and to give it life abundantly. Yet another in Luke, which was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 750 years before, was to set the captives free and was to give sight to the blind and was to bring in and to usher in the day of the Lord. And so all these things were part of the mission of Jesus. But in a nutshell, it was to meet people in their sin and to provide for payment for that sin so that we could have a relationship with the God who created us. That was the mission of his life. Bigger than, pre- uh, than, than preaching, bigger than doing miracles, bigger than helping people in need, it was to seek and to save that which was lost. And so today we're going to add yet another layer on top of all that as we look at another aspect of the biography of Jesus. And today we're going to focus specifically on his message. What was the message of his life? I've done a lot of funerals throughout the course of my ministry, and you've been to a lot of funerals throughout the course of your life. And the harsh reality is, and we know it, we don't like to think about it, dwell on it a whole lot, but we know that there's going to be a day as well for every single one of us unless Jesus returns beforehand, where we're going to have a gathering of people that are going to gather in our memory, and, and, and they're going to have a service that is built around the life that we lived. And there's going to be a five-minute, maybe ten-minute period of that service called the eulogy where someone or people are going to say good things about us, and they're going to pull out the highlights of our life. There's going to be an article written in the newspaper placed online called an obituary that's going to be, number one, very expensive. Number two, it's going to highlight the important aspects of our life. And all that to say that every one of us in this room today, every single one of us have a message to our lives right? There is something about our life, our life's message based on what do we say most often, what do we speak about most often, what is the tone and the tenor of our lives. All of us have a mission, or or rather a message that is attached to our lives. Jesus also had a primary message that was attached to his life. When you look through the message of the Gospels, for example, I'm going to have you go ahead and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. When you turn to to uh, to the Gospels, and especially here when you get to Matthew chapter 6, and you kind of lay that Bible open, you're going to see a lot of words in red. In fact, in my Bible, every verse is written in red from the start of Matthew 6 on the left side of my page to the very beginning of Matthew 7. And if you flip those pages, this is an area of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, you see a lot of red. All through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find that there, is a lot, there are a lot of red letters there. And we know that God wrote the whole Bible, in a sense, it's all God's words, but those in red are words that Jesus spoke while he was on this earth. And one of the things we see, and I want to talk about this for, for just a, a little bit before we move into uh, the, the heart of Jesus' message. One of the things about Jesus is that he, uh, he preached and he taught 
virtually everywhere that he went. His life was comprised of 33 years, essentially, on this earth. But of that life, it was that last three to three and a half years that we call his public ministry, right? So it was kind of like that last tenth of his life or so, what we see is Jesus' public ministry. When you read in the Gospels, most of the Gospels, most of the New Testament are going to be dealing with his public ministry. Virtually all of the Gospels outside of the, the, the birth narratives are going to deal with his earthly life and ministry, that three, three and a half years of his public ministry. And when you look at that, specifically what we see is that Jesus spoke a lot in the Gospels. He spoke often. He, he spoke in a variety of ways. Now remember, he, um, he operated in the land of Israel, and Israel at that time was under Roman rule. It was, in I guess layman's terms, it was kind of like Roman occupation of the land of Israel, the promised land. And yet as Jesus went about speaking and teaching, he said very little, if anything, of a political nature. Now, a lot of what he said had political connotations, right? They applied in the world of religion uh, or in the world of, uh, of politics, uh, but they were spiritual in nature first. But Jesus said virtually, virtually nothing. I mean, very, very little about the, the Romans who occupied the promised land in that, that time period in the first century. His message was not political in nature, it was a different message. And when he preached and when he taught, he, he did it often in the Gospels. He taught in synagogues. He taught in the synagogue in Nazareth where he was raised. He taught in the synagogue, synagogue in Capernaum. He taught in the temple. He taught in homes. Remember the passage of Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus is uh, he's teaching and uh, there's this commotion on the roof of the house where he is and, and there's a man that is lowered down and Jesus heals him and he performs one of his miracles there. He was in a house when he did that. He was preaching and he was teaching. It wasn't just the temple. It wasn't just the synagogues. It wasn't just in houses. It was on the highways and the byways throughout the region of Galilee and in Judea. Jesus would preach and he would teach. He spoke often. He spoke in the open air. He spoke in Luke 5 from a boat, right, pushed off from, from shore. And, and every place was a place for him, in a sense, to preach and teach. And there was a very specific message that, that, that was associated with it. And all through his ministry, he was known for preaching and teaching. He also spoke to groups of every size. I mean, he spoke to individuals. You look at Nicodemus in John chapter uh, 3. You look at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Those were individuals that Jesus carved out time for. And, and if he was here today living out his ministry the way that he did 2,000 years ago, and if he did it in our city, right, rather than in the region of, of Galilee and Judea, and, and he crossed paths with you, there's a really good chance he's going to carve out time to have a one-on-one -on -one with you as well, right? He taught with people individually. He taught with small groups. He, he spoke with the disciples. Much of his time, obviously, his investment as it related to discipleship was into the lives of those 12 disciples, and he poured into them, and 11 made it, you know, across the other side, uh, not counting Judas Iscariot, and the reason we even have the gospel today is because of their faithfulness. He poured into those guys. He poured into the small groups. He, he, uh, he preached to the masses. When he fed the 5,000, he was on a hillside. He was preaching. There, there was another incident in the New Testament where he, he preached. There were 4,000 that were fed as well, not just the 5,000, the 4,000. Luke 16, he, he preaches a message known as the, the, the message on the plain. Matthew 5 through 7, he preaches a message known as the Sermon on the Mount, the first recorded sermon that we have of him preaching in the Gospels. I mean, he preached to a variety of groups of people. He preached and taught virtually everywhere that he went. 
and he used a variety of styles as well. I appreciate this one because I speak often, right? And, uh, and when you look at the way Jesus communicated, he used a variety of styles. He would lecture, right? He would have discussion. He would often have discussion with the religious leaders of his day specifically. He spoke in parables. This parable sometimes a little hard to understand, whether it be the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the Good Samaritan or some of the others that he preached. He would often preach and teach in parables. And these parables were human kind of earthly language type stories that had a spiritual connotation to it. There was a bigger overarching purpose behind the parable that he would share. Jesus preached in parables often. He used object lessons. For example, look in Matthew chapter, uh, look at Matthew chapter 6. Let's see an example of an object lesson that he would use. This is interesting, and we're all heading, we're heading somewhere with all of this. Matthew chapter 6, look in verse uh, 25. Jesus is speaking here. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's an outdoor setting, open air, large masses of people, first recorded sermon, And he says in verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then then I personally believe that out in the open air, he probably used an object lesson for verse 26. He probably pointed to the sky. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. He probably pointed, right? Maybe it was full bloom time, and he's pointing to this field of of, of lilies growing in in full bloom. And as he points to them, He makes the mention, he says, Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But remember, his message was not just about not worrying, even though he says a lot of applicable things about not worrying. It wasn't just about avoiding a life of anxiety. The heart of his message we begin to see starting in verse 30. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field that's alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have a little faith, right? This is a message of, of trust in God. Do not worry saying, what, are we, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, I think this gives us a glimpse into the, the, the heart of Jesus' message on this earth. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, don't focus on the wrong things. Don't get caught up in your clothing and your attire and what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You focus on what matters most. You seek first him and his kingdom, and God's going to take care of the rest of you. Right? That, that, that's part of the overarching message of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. When you begin to put all this together, Jesus used a variety of communication styles. One he used is called hyperbole, right? You haven't thought about that since high school English class, I'm sure, right? Hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Let me give you an example of it here. We're staying in Matthew chapter 5, just a little bit further to the left. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. You've come across this before and kind of wondered, what is going on with this? Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Hopefully you've never taken that literally, all right? I don't see anyone so far 
who has apparently taken that literally. You didn't see people walking around in first century Judea and Galilee with just one eye because they took this literally. This is hyperbole. What is hyperbole? It's exaggeration, not to deceive, but to ultimately communicate a point. That's what Jesus used, and he used it from time to time. It was, it was emphasis to, uh, or it was exaggeration to, to emphasize, not to deceive. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. Right? Hyperbole, this is an exaggeration, not to deceive, but to emphasize. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I mean, Jesus is leading somewhere here. He's leading to a bigger message, and he's using exaggeration to do it. Another thing Jesus would often use was, was questions. He, would, he used questions over and over and over through the gospel. One, uh, one book I've written called Bless makes mention in there, the author says that Jesus asked 307 questions in the gospels. Somebody had some extra time at lunch, I guess. They went through and they summarized all these. They found 307 questions Jesus asked in the gospels. How many of those do you think he answered? Three. He would use questions to cause people to think deeper. He would ask questions to clarify. He would ask questions to pull somebody kind of out from the shadows and to see the implications of what they said they believed. It's a great tactic to use now when you're having conversations about Jesus, just to ask questions. How did you come to that conclusion? What causes you to believe that? What do you mean by that, right? Clarifying questions. Jesus asked questions over 300 times in the Gospels, he only answered enough that we can count on one hand. Here's an example, Matthew chapter 21. If you look a little further in the book of Matthew, Jesus is having conversation with the religious leaders who would later crucify him. Matthew 21, look down at verse 23. It says, when he, Jesus, entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Right? You've been doing these miracles, you've been preaching these messages, saying the things you're saying. So what's your authority? Who gives you this authority? Verse 24, Jesus said to them, I'll also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, here's the question. The baptism of John, this is John the Baptist, was from what source, from heaven or from men? Now remember who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist paved the pathway for the Messiah. John the Baptist is the one who said, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus specifically, <laughs> he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist was beheaded by the political ruler because of... Uh, his, his adherence to the truth, essentially. And he made the truth very personal, and the ruler didn't like it and had him beheaded. So Jesus asked the question, so the baptism of John the Baptist was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves. Can you hear him whispering, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why did you not believe him? Verse 26, but if we say, well, it was from men, we fear the people, for they all consider John to be a prophet. So answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And he also said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He asked questions to absolutely disarm, and he did it over 300 times in the New Testament. Now, if these guys were wanting to know by what authority so that they can consider following him, that's one thing. He had that kind of a conversation with Nicodemus. 
but he knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't have any desire to follow him. Their desire was ultimately to crucify him, and so he used a question to bring to light the fact for them they had no desire to see him as Lord. And he would use questions often, over and over and over. Mark chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, verse 1, it says, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, right? The religious leaders are watching Jesus with scrutinizing eyes so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And then he turns his attention. It says he, he said to them, he said to the religious leaders, Here's the question, is it lawful to do good? or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life, or to kill. But they kept silent, right? They had no answer. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus would use a variety of methods to communicate. He would use hyperbole. He would use questions. He would use debate. He would use lecture. He would have conversations that were just personal teaching moments. And he did it so well that when you go over to John chapter 7, and you you read this instance where the religious leaders are beginning to gain speed, they're wanting to do away with Jesus, listen to what it says here. John 7 verse 40. It says some of the people therefore when they heard these words were saying this certainly is the prophet and others were saying this is the Christ. Still others were saying surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee is he? See there's this buzz about Jesus. Look down to verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees right Jesus's enemies. And they said to them, why did you not bring him? The, the, the religious leaders are saying to the officers, why don't you bring him in? The officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. He was the greatest communicator that ever walked this earth. And he had time for the individual. He had time for the masses. He preached on a variety of topics, from lust to purity to money, to, 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 uh, to possessions. He spoke on uh, marriage and divorce. He spoke on virtually anything that you can imagine, right? He spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell. He spoke about eternal life. He spoke about anxiety. He spoke about all those things. And yet there was a primary emphasis, a primary message that captured his life. There's one author, Leonard Sweet, who made mention that there were four primary topics that Jesus spoke of in the Gospels. He spoke about a lot of things, but there were four primary topics that he spoke, topics that he spoke of. One, he spoke about the kingdom of God. Two, he spoke specifically about life, life in himself, life on this earth as well as eternal life. Three, he spoke about the Father, God the Father. And th four, he spoke about himself. Those are kind of the four overarching topics that Jesus spoke of. And when you, when you consider that, more than what he said about money, more than what he said about possessions, more than what he said about purity, more than what he said about relationships with other people, more than what he said about any other topic, it was kind of these four topics that he spoke the most about. About the kingdom of God, about life, about the Father, and about himself. And so what I want you to jot down as we, as we pull all this together, I want you to, to consider this takeaway, right, that I think 
captures all of this and helps us see, to see what was the overarching message of Jesus' life. That this is what I believe it was. That his primary message was of a different kingdom with a different king and an open invitation for any and all to be a part of it all. What was his message? Your life has a message. What was the message of Jesus' life and ministry? It was a message of a new kingdom, a different kingdom. A kingdom unlike any other. The people of Israel certainly understood the aspect of kingdoms because the Roman Empire is what reigned over them at the moment that Jesus walked among them. In fact, the reason Jesus was missed as the Messiah by the vast majority of the Jews was because they expected the Messiah to come and set them free physically, politically, and he didn't do that. Again, he said very little even of a political nature at all. He spoke virtually none about the, um, the occupying Romans in the land of Israel, but he did speak about a different kingdom. And it was a kingdom unlike any other that had ever reigned in this world. It was a kingdom specifically that, that, that he would say was not of this world. It was a kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar would speak of back in the Old Testament in, Deuteronomy, or, or in, um, uh, uh, in chapter 6 in the book of, uh, let me find it, it just left me. Daniel, thank you. I've only done this for 25 years, sorry. I lose my train of thought every now and then. Nebuchadnezzar spoke of it in Daniel chapter 6 of how God's kingdom is eternal, right? This was a different kingdom that Jesus came to implement. It was a, it was a kingdom that, that had been long anticipated through the pages of the Old Testament, through the Old Testament era. It was a kingdom that Jesus would speak about most often throughout the Gospels. It was a kingdom that referred to not literally a kingdom with marble floors and, 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 and tall ornate columns. It was a kingdom of God's reign. And anytime you see the emphasis on that phrase, kingdom of God, in the New Testament, more often than not, it refers to the, to the idea of God reigning and God ruling over people. And when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, when he said to Nicodemus, for example, that unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about, Nicodemus, you're not going to know you're not going to know what it means to live under the rule and in relationship with God unless you were born again. What did he mean by that? It meant you have to die to yourself and ultimately yield your life to the person of Jesus because only he can make you right with the Father. Only he can give you entrance into this kingdom. He would also say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, he would say to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And he paints this picture of what this kingdom, what this reign of God looks like in a person's life, that we don't get it by paying for it. We don't get it by going to church. We don't get it by any other thing, living a good life, doing a bunch of good deeds. The only way we step into and enter into the kingdom of God is when we turn, we repent from our sins that separate us from him, and when we trust in Jesus to be exactly who he says he is, eternal God who came and died and rose. And when we turn from our sins and place our faith in him, we are radically born all over again on the inside. We become 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creature in Christ. That is the only way we have a relationship with God. That was the heart of his message. That was his message. More than all the other topics that he talked about, it was this implementation that there is a new kingdom, a different kingdom that has come. It's not political in nature. It's the kingdom of God. And this kingdom has a different king. This would have resonated in the 
in the ears and the hearts and the minds of those who heard him in the first century. It would have resonated with the, uh, with the people of Israel, with the Jews, because they understood the tension between having a relationship with God and, and, and looking to live a life that honored God and living in Roman territory where Caesar was worshipped. You see that especially explode later in the New Testament when Paul comes along and these followers of Jesus are actually accused <laughs> They're actually accused of going against the Roman Empire because of their yieldedness to this King Jesus. Herod understood there was a new king that had come. You remember the birth narratives when Herod issues the decree to murder all the boys two years of age and under in the city of Bethlehem. Why? Because there had been prophesied that a king was coming and he feared that he had come. And he was right. But rather than trying to eliminate him, he should have bowed before him. Because a new king had come to rule and had come to reign. Not like any other political leader, not like Herod, not like Caesar. And this King Jesus is unlike any other king that we've ever witnessed or experienced ever before as well. His message was a message of a different kingdom with a different king. And an open invitation for any and all to come and be a part of it all. This would reverberate in not so positive ways when Jesus would start including the Gentiles in the kingdom. This also would reverberate in not so positive ways later in the New Testament whenever the early church would swing open the doors to the Gentiles who would simply come and see turning from sin, placing faith in Jesus as well. But Jesus' message was always about opening the door to anyone who would come to him on his terms, always his terms. Repent and trust in him alone. Follow. That invitation was open to the high and mighty as well as those of the down and out. That invitation to come and repent and follow him was open to the priests as well as to the prostitutes. It was open to the rich, and it was open to the poor. It was open to those who had the greatest of influence and the loudest of voices in the culture, and it was open to those who had no voice in the culture. It was open to those of every variety of background and life experience. It was open to the white collar, the invitation was open to the blue collar, and the invitation was open to those with no collar. <laughs> It was just simply come. Come and see. And come and follow. And the message that he proclaimed, the message that he was crucified for, and the message that the Bible continues to echo all the way up to 2,000 years later is a message of a new kingdom where God reigns, of a new king named Jesus with an invitation open to all of us, including you. And you know what? If you've accepted that invitation and you've given your life to Jesus, then the message of your life, listen, this is a big couple of dots to connect. If all this is true and that was his message and you've given your life to him, then listen, your message and my message can be no different. It's about him getting glory as we live out and as we proclaim a new kingdom with a new king and an invitation to come and know and follow. And if you've never given your life to him, 
And maybe you're one of those who's down and out. Maybe you're one of those who's up and coming. Maybe you're one of those who's arrived, but there's still a void on the inside because something doesn't seem to fit, and there's this gnawing lack of peace, and there's this gnawing lack of joy, and there's this gnawing sense that something is not quite right, and I just feel guilty, and I feel like something is between me and God. Here's the issue. The issue and the need is for you to come and to bow before him as many have over these 2,000 years and to lay down the sin and to place your faith in Christ so that you can know the abundant life that he came to offer. And it only comes through him. That's what he said. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hey, what's the message of your life? Is it a message of pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and everybody looking and saying, boy, look what a success this person has become? Is it a message about something else? Or is it a message of simply, this is what God has done for me? A message of grace. At the end of the day, hopefully, we're all just trophies of his grace. Trophies don't bring attention to, our, to themselves. Trophies bring attention to the accomplishment of another. <laughs> I think that's the goal, right? The message of our life, the mission of our life, and the lives we live are simply trophies of his grace that don't bring attention to us. It just puts on display the magnificent love, grace, and mercy of a Savior named Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Lord, who give us such a snapshot of what your life was like on this earth. A lot of interesting details that help us to understand what you were like what you were all about, Jesus, when you walked this earth. But also a lot of meat there that helps us to see that the mission of your life was to seek and save that which was lost. You were willing to die to accomplish that. And that the message of your life was a message of a new kingdom with you as king and an invitation to come and know you and to serve you. And Lord, scattered around this room today are those who, who have a relationship with you, God, and I pray that for those of us who've come to place our faith in Christ, that we, that we realize that the message of our life is not to be different than what your message was. It's, it's not as though we should live out a life message that's contradictory to yours or confusing to yours. It should only serve to emphasize your message. That whenever our day comes and whenever people gather around a setting like this and they remember the lives that we lived as uncomfortable as a thought as that might be, Lord, may the, memory, may the memories and the remembrances be that we as people lived a life that put you on display, that we were trophies of your grace. More than anything else we did, more than anything else we cared about, more than anything else we pursued, that people can say about us to your glory that the message of our life was a message of your grace that highlighted you. And God, I also pray for those today that's not the message of their life, but they want it to be. I pray for those today who the message of their life so far has been just wrong choices and sinful choices and the the havoc that sin causes and wreaks in our lives whenever we seek to be the master of our own lives. And I pray for those today who are ready for change. God, they want a new kingdom to replace the one they've tried to build. They want a new king to replace themselves on the throne of their heart. And they want to accept your invitation of life and peace and forgiveness and joy forever. 
and right where they sit, God, today, for those that have never done it, if they're ready to follow you, Jesus, with all their heart, and if they believe that you're God, that you died and that you rose, right where they sit, give them the courage today to say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin and save me and keep me that I might follow you from this day forward. God, for those who do, thank you that you swing open the doors to the new kingdom and that you take your position on the throne of their heart and that you begin providing the abundant life that only you can deliver. Lord, may our church always be about that message louder than any other. To your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.